0: Thanks for downloading Dark Histories. Before we start, I just want to throw out a few ways that you can get involved and help support the show. We have a Patreon, Amazon booklist, list, coffee, and Audible affiliate link. So if you're interested in supporting, hopefully you can find a way that best suits you. All of the links for those things can be found either in the show notes or over on the website at darkhistories.com. Of course, just continuing to spread the word about the show on social media, Leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends is also a huge help, so thank you to everyone for all that. Alright, enough of this. Let's crack on with the episode. Just before dawn on the outskirts of New York Harbour, a small sloop sailed listlessly into the bay. The ship had no crew, no lights and a deck covered in blood. It presented a mystery to the local police, who set their detectives on the case, which led to a manhunt up the east coast of the United States in pursuit of a phantom. They may have had a description and a name, but they had no idea of the monster that they would find at the end of the trail. More than a phantom, they were chasing a legend, a man who would later become whispered about in taverns as the last pirate of New York. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello everyone and welcome to Dark Histories. This is season 4, episode 14, which is absolutely mad. Episode 14 means we're fully well past the halfway point of the season already, which is crazy, like how fast this year is going. Which, in all honesty, is probably for the best. I don't think anyone's going to be unhappy to see the back of this year. I don't have a great deal to say today about things upcoming or anything like that, so I just want to say a big thank you. To everyone who supports the show in every way that you support it. You know, whether that be financial through the patron or, you know, for sharing the show or or leaving reviews, things like that. Thank you so much. And of course, thank you to all the new patrons. This week, we've got Adrian, Emma, Brianna, Greta, Maureen, Beck, Michelle, Shadar, Yvette, Tom, Matthew, Paolo, John, Philip, Ryan and Laura, Tavis, Lauren Nina, Kim, The Collectathon, Gustav, Claire, Susan, Will, Erin, James and Scott. So thank you so much. That's really very kind. And of course, everyone who supports you know all the time. Thank you so much for that. So other than that, we're just going to bundle straight into the episode. And this is Albert Hicks, the Pirate King of New York. It was a cold spring morning on March 21st 1860 when Captain Ben Nickerson stepped out onto the deck of the schooner on the approach to New York Harbour. The sun had not yet risen and the air still had a lingering winter bite as it whipped off the sea. He and his crew had been hauling molasses from Pennsylvania. It had been a long slog but the trip was almost done. As he stood contemplating the ship's next contract, The still morning was broken with a sudden cracking of splintering wood, a violent jerk forwards, and the sickening, booming crunch of wood collapsing into wood. His ship had hit something, but Nickerson had not seen any other ships ahead. No lights had alerted him to any danger, so what could it have been? As he approached the front of the ship, he saw before him the darkened outline of a small sloop, hanging listlessly off the front of his own ship. The sloop looked in worse condition than his own boat. There was wood scattered across its deck, and the rigging appeared to have collapsed too. He called out to the lifeless boat in front of him, though no crew called back. After the enormous crash of the collision, the air had returned to an eerie stillness, and the creaking of the ship's damaged hulls echoed through the air. No one appeared to be aboard, so with effort he steered his own ship free from the tangle, and headed in towards the South Street docks in Manhattan in order to wrap up his job, get the boat out of the water, and assess the damage properly. An hour later, just as the sun began peeking out above the horizon, a schooner named the Telegraph, sailing from New London, Connecticut, came across the damaged sloop. This time, with the light of dawn on his side, a coming together between the ships was avoided, and instead, They drew up alongside the apparently empty vessel, and Captain Cisterre, who headed up the crew of the telegraph, called out. Once again, he received the same blank reply from the sloop. Curious, the boat drew up alongside the sloop's fractured hull, and the crew hopped on board in search of life, or at least a clue as to why the ship was floating around so aimlessly and in such a state. Once they had dropped onto the deck, however, a nightmare picture began to unveil. Large, deep gashes in the wooden railings, masts and destroyed rigging tore chunks of splintered wood, spitting them out across the deck that appeared to have been washed in blood. It was as though they had walked into a slaughterhouse at the end of a day's work. Noticing the lack of life raft hanging from the rear of the ship, the crew returned to the telegraph and attempted to tow it into New York, but the damage and size of the ship made it too heavy for the small schooner, so instead they called for help enlisting the aid of a tugboat who pulled the grim shell to appear next to Fulton Fish Market before contacting the authorities to alert them of the find. Captain Hart Weed, Officer Washbourne and the local coroner all boarded the empty, sorry-looking vessel. The deck was besmirched with blood. It appeared as if two persons had been lying on it and one had been dragged out of the cabin. The appearance of the blood led to the inference that on deck one had lain in front of the mast and the other amidships, Forward of the mast there was some light-coloured hair and blood. The blood had run on both sides of the vessel. When we hauled the sail up, it was found to have covered up a great quantity of blood. On two places there was blood on the outside of the rail, rubbed on as if a bleeding body with clothes on had been thrown overboard. In the cabin of the boat they found further gashes in the walls and low ceiling, along with a scene of carnage. It seemed to weed that whatever had happened on deck had originated in the cabin. A fight or scuffle of some sort had taken place as drawers lay ransacked and paper strewn about the place and furniture was toppled over. At the rear of the cabin, behind the stove, there were three deep holes scorched into the wood by a red-hot poker, the remnants of which lay cast aside into the room. They had been deeply bored, deep enough in fact to potentially sink the ship outright, but blood and debris had filled them, blocking them of their purpose and cooling the burning wood before any fatal damage could have been done. All told, the boat offered the police a mysterious scene. There was so much damage, so much that told a story of a crew's final hours, but where were they now? There were so few clues to actually lead anywhere away from the ship. The only solid line of inquiry to follow was the missing lifeboat. Perhaps if they could find that, they could find the missing crew or even the people responsible for so much carnage. As they made their way to the centre of the deck, they discovered one last grisly clue. Four fingers and a thumb lay lifelessly on the wooden floor, curled in a pool of blood. In 1860, New York City was one of the richest ports in the world, dealing with over 60% of all imports and exports for the entire country. With the vast shipping economy, The population had exploded as immigrants poured into the city from across Europe, escaping persecution and famine in Ireland and Italy. Despite its vast wealth and though areas like Central Park had recently opened to the public, the money that permeated through the city was not always reflected in the population and the divide between the rich and the poor was starkly drawn in the streets. Uptown saw moneyed citizens hiding away behind walled gardens on leafy streets whilst the dock areas crushed people one atop the other in rickety slums built on disused flatland. The block system as familiar today was still in its infancy, and the closer you got to the water, the more it deteriorated into back streets, narrow alleyways, and the winding streets of the old town. Within these streets, criminality was often the key to survival, fueled by taverns and a large underclass of men who had arrived in New York with no real direction, the shores of America had offered them a better life, but plans had rarely developed beyond the price of a boat ticket. Gangs flourished in the violent atmosphere, culminating in the worst riot in New York history that had taken part three years prior when the Dead Rabbits and the Bowery Boys took advantage of an internal police feud to wage a citywide gang war. Throughout the city, other groups such as the Plug Uglies, the Hudson Dusters, The YOs and the Forty Thieves operated to control their own patches, whilst youth gangs like the slaughterhouses and the Short Tales acted like development academies for crime. Central to all the illegality was Corleas Hook, the city's red light district that was home to opium dens and bars with names like The Tub of Blood and The Hole in the Wall. Crime surged with pickpockets, robberies and murder skyrocketing, in 1860, the murder rate for the city was four times that of today, and worryingly, that only included reported murders. Many crimes that took place throughout the slums passed under the police radar entirely, simply because they often preferred to ignore the chaos. It was into this part of the city that William Johnson rode the lifeboat of the Oyster Sloop, the EA Johnson to on the morning on the 21st of March as dawn broke. The carnage that he had been a part of on the old sloop was behind him now, and with luck, it was at the bottom of the water already. He landed the boat onto the rocky shore, dragged it up to the tree line, and bade a farmer good morning as he passed. Dressed in a blue monkey coat, black pants, and black cosset hat, with a large bag tossed over his shoulder, his large bushy whiskers gave his otherwise handsome face a rugged, sea-worn look. He stopped to ask the farmer if his boat would be safe left by the shore and then took off towards the nearby ferry dock. As the day got into full swing, the story of the gruesome ghost sloop broke heavily in the local papers. Crime was always big news, especially crime that involved the water. With a city full of sailors as a demographic, headlines such as Murder Sloop Haunt City and Ghost Ship Horror were too good to pass up for the newly emerging rags. The sloop E.A. Johnson, commanded by George Burr, was found yesterday morning about half-past six o'clock between Sandy Hook and Coney Island Point, under circumstances which leave no doubt as to a bloody tragedy having occurred on board. It was about noon when Coroner Shermer, Doctors Boston and Beach, and our reporter proceeded on board the sloop for the purpose of investigating the matter. The pier was crowded with fishermen, oyster dealers and others who were impatiently awaiting the arrival of the coroner. The sloop certainly had the appearance of having recently been in collision with some vessel judging from the damaged condition of her bow spirit and cutwater. her sails too were lying loose on deck and everything denoted signs of confusion and violence. What has become for the crew is a difficult thing to say. The presumption is that they have been murdered but by whom it is impossible to determine. They may have been assassinated by one of their own number or by river pirates. It is said that Captain Burr had over $1,000 in his possession, with which he intended to purchase his cargo, and this money may have been sufficient incentive for the murderers. The disappearance of the small boat goes to favour the idea that the butchery was committed by one or more of the crew, or someone who has concealed himself on board. In a day or so, perhaps sufficient will be developed to enable us to arrive at some conclusion respecting the affair, but at present, everything is shrouded in mystery. The E.A. Johnson had presented a pretty striking and, for many, exciting mystery. So far, the police had only been able to ascertain a rough idea of the violence that had beset the crew along with who the crew had actually been. The sloop was ordinarily in the business of travelling down through to Virginia to buy up oysters, which it would then return with to New York in order to sell at the Fulton Fish Market. The crew had been well known around the docks and consisted of the captain, George Burr, a man in his early 30s from Islip, Rhode Island, and two younger hands, half-brothers Oliver and Smith Watts. Oliver was the elder at only 23 years old, whilst Smith was just starting out of his life on the water at only 19. Both also hailed from Islip, same as the captain. In recent weeks, the mate had left the crew, and so Captain Burr had taken on a new member, a carpenter going by the name of William Johnson, He hadn't been known previously by Burr, but he seemed to know his stuff, and he proved to have been a smart hire. Writing to his wife before heading out on the faithful journey that would be their last, Burr said of Johnson, This man, William Johnson, who lives in New York, is a smart fellow. He went at the mast and scraped it while we were here in Keyport without telling, whilst I was ashore. He is a good hand, can turn his hand to almost anything. The only skill the new mate appeared to lack aboard the ship had been in steering, but that was okay. The Watts brothers were perfectly adequate at that, and he more than made up for it with his carpentry skills. Of course, when he had hired Johnson, Burr was not to know that his name was in fact not Johnson at all, nor was he to know that he was a murderous pirate. He would find that out after it was already much, much too late. The police also had little idea who this fourth member of the crew was, only that witnesses had spent time with him and that he had been a new hire aboard the sloop. Going by William Johnson, no one seemed to know who he was, nor where he had come from. To add to the mystery, he had no prior records, which led police to believe that it was more than likely a false name, which instantly elevated the man to prime suspect. The Harbour Patrol had been out looking for the missing rowboat, and they'd found it ditched in tall grass out by Fort Tompkins on Staten Island. So Captain Hartweed, enlisting the aid of Detective George Nevins, headed out in order to pick up the trail. Inside the boat, they found little but a broken oar and an old boot, but leading away from the vessel, they were able to follow a trail that headed inland. Detective Nevins and his partner, closely flanked by New York Times journalist Elias Smith, set about questioning the locals, several of whom claimed to have seen the man arrive on the shore and some who had even spoken to him and given him directions to Vanderbilt's ferry landing two miles up the coast. Following, the trio arrived at the quiet landing two hours later. It was a quiet little ferry port built up by small shacks and a few houses. The port proper consisted of a ticket stand and a newsstand and was overlooked by a tavern. Nevins inquired about the fugitive and soon found from the dockkeeper, Abram Megbert, that he had turned up on the morning of the 21st, only to miss the ferry by a matter of minutes. In order to pass the time until the next boat, Johnson had entered the tavern and drank more or less an entire bottle of whiskey, whilst eating eggs and oysters. Hardly lying low, during his time there, he had flashed around a number of gold and silver pieces drawn from the sack he carried over his shoulder, and he had bought the entire place drinks. He had told the barkeeper there that he had been a seafaring man, but that his boat had been crashed, the crew had been killed, and that he had taken everything he could, just about managing to escape with his life. From the ferry port, Detective Nevins took the ferry to Manhattan, landing at the Whitehall Street Dock, where he spoke to a man named Charles Lacoste. Lacoste was a news and stack stall vendor. Johnson, he said, had bought a coffee and cake from him after disembarking from the ferry. Nevins had determined already from the cabin boy aboard the boat that Johnson had been on board and looking for the most part quite the worse for wear. He had slept for most of the crossing to Manhattan with his head on his large sack. Lacoste told a similar story. When Johnson had tried to pay for his coffee and cake, he had offered the vendor a gold piece in payment, but the vendor had had to turn it down, on the grounds that he could not make change for a coffee and cake that cost only six cents. Johnson had rummaged about in his sack and eventually fished out enough odd change to pay the vendor before asking where he could hire a horse and cart. Lacoste had told him that it was still too early for the hacks to be operating and instead, he suggested that he take the stage from East Broadway. Johnson then changed tact, asking if Lacoste could suggest a hotel where he could get some rest and the vendor offered up the nearby French's Hotel as a suitable venue. Though, in all honesty, it was far above the sort of divey Doss House that Johnson was looking for. As he walked away from the vendor, William Drum, a 16-year-old street kid, approached Johnson and offered to carry his bag. Johnson agreed and he paid the boy three shillings whilst he dragged his tired feet up Broadway. Knocking on the local doors and houses, calling into all the local hotels and vendors, Detective Nevins hit an abrupt dead end on the trail. Johnson had walked up Broadway with the boy, but once he had paid him off and the two had separated, he apparently seemed to just disappear. It was a disappointing end for Nevins to a promising lead. Dejected, he returned to the station to reassess the difficult position that he now found the case to fall in. In 1860, detective work was anything but glamorous. It was an emerging career path and pay was abysmally low. Most detectives operated reasonably corrupt jobs on the side in order just to sustain a good wage, and the police work that they did do, which so often ended in dead ends and broken leads, was often downplayed. In an age when forensics was still in its infancy, the trail of a suspect was everything. Cases hinged on creating an unbroken chain from the scene of a crime that led directly to the suspect often relying on sketchy eyewitness accounts and hazy remembrances. The chain that Nevins had followed with such enthusiasm up Broadway the day before was, in the cold light of the new day, looking increasingly like it would turn out to be just another empty lead. The missing boat had been the only solid clue they had and it had led them straight into a brick wall. Just occasionally, however, luck would fall the way of the lost detective and so it was with the sloop case. The next morning, Mr. Burke, the operator of an apple stand on Greenwich Street, showed up at the station, believing he had information that could be useful. Aside from operating the apple stall, Burke had managed an apartment complex on Cedar Street, and the day before, one of his tenants, who was due to be out to sea for a time, had come back unexpectedly early. Furthermore, he had come back with a large sack, apparently stuffed full of cash. He had told the other residents in the apartment complex several stories of how he had come into the money. To one, he had told of how he had come into an unexpected inheritance, whilst another, he told he had stumbled upon an abandoned ship that he had sold for scrap. The tenant had always paid his rent, and to Burke, he had always seemed like a fairly honest man. But now he seemed to be acting strange, and later that day, he and his wife and an infant child packed up their belongings and abruptly left it was all very suspicious to Burke and he repeated these concerns to detective Nevins Nevins was instantly on board with no other leads to follow he really had no choice either way but the fellow that Burke was talking about did seem suspicious enough and at least in part he seemed to match the description of Johnson Burke agreed to take him to the apartment complex on Cedar Street and just like that the trail was hot once more When they reached the apartment complex Nevins found a small unfurnished shack of a room It appeared as though it had been hastily abandoned and a few papers along with some innocuous trash items were left behind but otherwise the drawers, wardrobes and cupboards had lain empty Standing out from the other items however was a tarnished silver compass which Nevins pocketed before leaving the shack to ask about in the street below after the man who had previously lived there It turned out that the local merchants had had quite a bit to say of the previous tenant. He had returned home from sea, flashing his money around, to all who would give him a moment of their time. Once more, he had told several, equally exotic stories to different people, all as unlikely as the stories that he had told the other tenants. He had also spent lavishly on clothes and drink, which he enthusiastically offered to everyone he bumped into. Amongst the mess of tall tales that he had offered the local populace, one thread had always remained constant that he now planned to head up to the coast, either to Connecticut or Providence from Rhode Island. When Nevins inquired with a local broker, he found that a man matching Johnson's description had come in the day before and changed up $260 in gold and silver for paper bills. The broker, Albert James of the Farmers and Citizens Bank of Williamsburg, had always had his suspicions throughout the transaction but when he asked how the money had come to be in his possession, he was fed a story that the man was the mate of a sick captain who had sent him inland in order to change up money to pay for medical expenses. With no other reason to suspect him, the broker had changed up the coins and watched as Johnson stuffed the bills into a large sack and then left. The next step for Detective Nevins was to follow the trail north. Everyone had told him the same story, that Johnson was headed up shore to take a ferry named the Commonwealth. And so, along with his partner and trusty journalist guide, the trio boarded a train and headed 45 miles north to the ferry dock in Stonington. Arriving around 6 pm that evening, Nevins wasted no time in canvassing the Commonwealth. The ferry ship clerk inspected the manifest and confirmed with the detective that a man named Johnston had boarded the Stonington and disembarked at a small town upriver. Once again, however, Nevins was greeted by disappointment when the Johnson in the Manifest had turned out to be the wrong man. Asking around, he'd found out that the child accompanying the Johnson of the Manifest had been a young adult, but Nevins knew that the child of the Johnson that he was trailing was an infant. Dejected, the trio travelled down to Providence in Rhode Island by train to see what they might be able to turn up there instead. In 1860, Providence was a bustling seaport with a population of around 50,000. Founded in 1836 by Roger Williams, a rogue preacher who had been forced to flee Massachusetts due to religious persecution, it had boomed as a major seaport, only faltering once New York took over and quickly dwarfed it in size. Despite several chronic outbreaks of cholera, the port was severely overcrowded and people lived stacked in cramped housing. In many respects, not least its chaotic dock area, it mirrored New York in miniature. When Detective Nevins arrived, he enlisted the help of a local detective, George Sillings, and the crew spent the first day cruising the local dives in order to ask after the mysterious Johnson, but it was all to no avail. Elias Smith, the plucky New York Times journalist who had trailed Nevins all the journey, suggested on a hunch that they check out the ferry to Massachusetts. He considered that their fugitive may have taken the ferry and travelled back to Providence from the north in order to throw any police from his tail. Nevins however disagreed. So far the man had not showed that level of cunning. In fact he had not really appeared to show any concerns that the police may have been following him at all. Smith decided to test out his theory alone and he took the ferry questioning the crew. As if the detective's party had not fallen into enough luck so far as it was, Smith's hunch turned out to be a good one. Several members of the crew confirmed that they had seen a man matching Johnson's description, and they even supplied his next steps. After he had disembarked, he had taken a taxi cab driven by a one ruble Wyman. Smith quickly hunted down this driver, and he had him take him to a boarding house owned by Mrs. Crowell. This was where Johnson had gone the day before, he'd said. Reporting the information back to Nevins, the detective bore in the driver to the station, questioned him, and confirmed that their man was certainly back in the picture. Throughout the questioning, Wyman had looked about nervously, and when Nevins asked why, the driver replied only that the man you are looking for is not the sort of man you play with. Wyman was probably the only person on the entire trail who had, perhaps, seen past Johnson's Care 3 enthusiastic and chaotic demeanor. Regardless, he agreed to take the detective out to the house that night, and upon their arrival, Nevin spied Johnson's wife, confirming that they were still there. Slinking back from the rickety boarding house, the detectives called for backup and laid their plan to infiltrate the house in the middle of the night, in order to catch Johnson whilst he was sleeping. At 1am, they sent a policeman to the door to knock. Mrs. Crowell, the house's owner was not at all impressed with the disturbance but when she was told the cover story that Johnson was suspected to have paid a taxicab driver with dodgy bills she agreed to let the detectives in creeping up the stairs and into their rooms Nevins found Mrs. Johnson and the child asleep in bed, along with William Johnson asleep in a separate room Nevins woke him and told him to get up and get dressed and then he asked him his name as they had suspected all along Johnson had been a pseudonym. The man stood in the middle of the room and replied, My right and proper name is Albert W. Hicks. Johnson, the man followed up, was a name he often took when he went to sea, but the man was not willing to shed any more light into his background for now. Nevins went on to search the room, where he found a silver watch and knife confirmed to have belonged to Captain Burr of the Oyster Sloop, along with two handkerchiefs, a leather wallet, and a locket ring that contained a photo of one of the Hans' fiancées and two canvas bags ordinarily used to carry money. Stuffed into his pockets, they found $121 in bills. Nevins arrested Hicks and then, before leaving, in a moment of pity, he gave Hicks' wife $10 from the stash of bills. Hicks spent the night sleeping in a local jail before being escorted back to New York City the following morning. On the journey back, Elias Smith broke the news to Hicks of the real charge, that Hicks was suspected of the murders on the Oyster Sloop. On being informed of the crime with which he was charged, he exhibited no particular surprise, but just shook his head saying, I don't know anything about it. Hicks went on throughout the journey, denying to have ever been aboard the sloop at all and suggesting that he had come into the small fortune he was carrying via speculating on the markets. Even after their arrival in New York, and after Marshal Rinders had brought in witnesses, all of whom positively ID'd him as the man that they had seen aboard the sloop, and the fourth member of the crew for its final voyage, Hicks continued to deny it all. He was promptly taken to the tombs, the large prison on Centre Street, where he was housed on Murderous Corridor, ground floor, cell 8, to await his trial. In the run-up to the trial, Hicks hired the lawyers' graves and sales, quickly found that Hicks actually had little in the way of defense. He continued to insist that he had not been in New York at the time of the murders, and this, they decided, was their best bet. If they could determine an alibi for Hicks, find a few witnesses here or there who could place him outside the scene of the crime, then the overwhelming evidence, such as him being in possession of several items belonging to the murdered crew, would matter less and less. The problem they came across, however, was finding anyone to stand as witness. The case was, by now, a media sensation, and Hicks was on the wrong end of the accusatory attitudes of the editorials. No one was willing to remember seeing Hicks at the time of the murders, or at least, no one who could place him away from the crime. Not even his own brother, who wrote to the lawyers in reply of a plea for assistance. Justice must, in my case at least, triumph over brotherly love. When a man so far forgets his duty to God and man, as to stain his own hands with human blood, though he were my own brother, I would sign his death warrant. Although on legal terms, the trial ahead looked bleak for Hicks, and polite society had much already made the decision on his guilt, amongst the underclasses of New York, he had turned into something of a legend. Tales that he had been shanghaied, that is, that he had been doped and kidnapped in order to work aboard a ship against his will floated around the bars and dens of the slums. Rumours that the murders had in fact been a daring tale of escape began to surface, and as the stories grew, so too did the excitement for both the case and for Hicks himself. People began to visit his cell in the tombs to catch a glimpse of the man that everyone was talking about, including, of course, the New York entertainer and all-round bonkers museum owner, P.T. Barnum. Barnum had big plans for Hicks and he made him offer to cast his face in plaster in order to create a waxwork of him to display in his museum. This, he thought, was a great idea in order to appease the crowds who could not bribe or otherwise pay their way into the tombs to see the man himself. Hicks agreed to the scheme, the fee of $25 and two boxes of cigars. Hicks's trial began on 11.13am. Monday the 14th of May 1860 and it was overseen by Judge Smalley an old man who was known to be fast but fair. It lasted for six full days and was prosecuted by James Dwight. On the opening morning it was explained to the court that Hicks was to be charged with piracy. The bodies from the sloops had still not come to light and without the bodies there could be no charge of murder. This left the authorities with the option of charging him for theft a crime that would see him taking an easy sentence and re-enter society with barely an inconvenience or to charge him with piracy, a crime that would see him hanged. For the authorities it was a simple decision and despite objections from the defence on the grounds that a charge of piracy belonged to crimes undertaken on the open sea the judge overruled and allowed the charges to stand. The defence then requested that the trial be moved out of New York where Hicks may have the chance to find an unbiased jury untainted by the media presence that surrounded the case of the Oyster sleep murders. However, this too was rejected by the judge, and the trial commenced proper. Hicks, standing in the dock, had shown up that morning respectfully dressed, with his black hair neatly brushed back. His manner is much more refined than the published reports would lead one to suppose. He stood quietly and observed as day after day, the prosecution brought in witnesses and offered evidence that placed him smack into the centre of the scene of the crime, including witnesses who claimed to have eaten dinner with Captain Burr and Hicks aboard the sloop on the days before he had left the harbour, and several who had seen him working aboard the boat after he had been hired by Burr. A manifest was displayed with the name W.M. Johnson clearly printed and signed with an X, along with a parade of witnesses who were related to the victims who gave personal accounts of the murdered men and positively identified the compass, locket ring, and silver watch as belonging to members of the crew. The defense had little in return. They mainly pressed on with their complaint that the charges of piracy were not lawful. The world was full of second-hand sailors' belongings, and for Hicks to own them, they said, meant very little. In the closing statements, the prosecution summed up confidently. I had hoped that the defense would prove me wrong and proved this man innocent of these crimes. But I have been disappointed. The following Saturday, six days after the start of the trial, the jury stepped out to make their deliberations for a total of seven minutes before offering their verdict of guilty to the judge. The sentence of the law and the court is that you be taken from this place to the prison from whence you came, there be kept in close confinement until Friday the 13th day of July next, and on that day, take them thence to Ellis Island or to Belows Island in the Bay of New York, as the marshal for this district may elect, and there, between the hours of 10 o'clock in the morning and 3 o'clock in the afternoon, be hung by the neck until you are dead. The sentencing hit Hicks hard. Back in his cell, he considered his position and that of his wife, who he would leave destitute with a new child. Wardens reported that he would lay awake at night, sobbing to himself and even that he requested that they sit with him, for he feared being alone. Quickly Hicks turned to religion, requesting the presence of a priest, who visited him daily. Father Henry Duranquit from the local college of St. Francis Xavier on the sixteenth Street listened to Hicks's concerns. Concerns for his wife and for his own future. Was it ever too late to be saved from hell? Could he find forgiveness? The priest assured him but it was never too late, and if he was willing to offer a confession, he may yet save himself. Hicks's interviews with the local papers began taking a sharp religious bent when he now claimed that though it was true that he was guilty of the murders, it was the devil that had made him do it. The devil was the fifth personage. He possessed me and urged me to do it. It makes me shudder now, but then I did not mind it. I told you, the devil urged me on. He sustained me then, but now he has deserted me. In the uncomfortable hours alone in his cell, Hicks began to feel a pang in his chest, an urge to confess his crimes in the vague hope that in doing so he could maybe, just maybe, be saved in the next life that was fast approaching him. And boy, oh boy, what a confession it was. Four days before his execution, on July the 9th, 1860, William Hicks sat in his cell in the tombs, surrounded by Deputy Marshal Lorenzo De Angelis and transcriber G.W. Clackener. They were there to hear his full confession and to write it down as true they could. Hicks had made a deal with a local publisher, R.M. DeWitt, to publish the confession on the day of his execution, and that all proceeds from sales should go to his wife and son. As they settled in to hear the story of the life of Albert Hicks, the true horror of the man that had murdered the crew of the E.A. Johnson came to light it would appear that the murders on the Oyster Sloop were nothing but the tip of the whole horrific iceberg Albert Hicks had been born in 1828 the sixth of seven sons in a family of 13 in Foster, Rhode Island his father had been a farmer and he had raised Albert with the intention that he too should either work for the fields or learn a trade to this end he was sent to learn shoemaking, but by the age of 15, Hicks had grown tired of this laborious work that his father saw fit for him and he took off, stashing the money that he had earned from odd jobs and fleed across the fields toward Providence, where he diverted on to Norwich, Connecticut. The paltry sum of money that he had prepared for the journey didn't last long, and so he turned instead to stealing luggage from the train station to sell, and eventually, Destitute, he returned home with his tail between his legs after less than a week. His crimes followed him, however, and the police tracked him all the way back, arresting him for theft and promptly jailing him for 18 months. Not yet 16 years old, Hicks had made his first escape only three months into his sentence and made his way to Gloucester, Rhode Island, cheating and stealing all the way. He took a job on a farm, but this didn't last long. Six weeks later, The police once again had caught up to him and returned him to jail. This time, they extended his sentence and gave him hard labour. Daily, Hicks went out to work with a chain gang, tossed into leg irons and carted out to slog for the state. Hicks hadn't enjoyed the manual labour when it was his choice, so he was dead against being forced into it. A month later, with the aid of a hammer and chisel, he cast off his irons and ran away for a third time. On the outskirts of Providence, he was spotted, got into a fight, lost and found himself once more thrown back into jail. This time the police took no risks with the flight happy little juvenile and tossed him straight into Solitary where he whiled away the days in darkness for the next year. By the time he was released Solitary would have likely taken a fairly heavy toll on the young man's mind but he appeared to knuckle down and took a job as a shoemaker in Gloucester where he worked for seven months before leaving for Rhode Island and hopping aboard his first ship, the Philip Tapp, a whaler bound for the Pacific. Aboard the ship, he took the role of odd job boy and he dabbled in carpentry, a trade that he would continue to ply for several years, aboard several ships that sailed right across the Pacific and South America. The large turning point for Hicks came when he was working aboard the ship, the Saladin, where he witnessed a mutiny against the captain. The crew turned against their leaders, tying up the captains and mate and killing them. Though the entire crew was eventually arrested, most were set free with little more than slapped wrists, while the leaders of the mutiny were hanged. The scenes aboard the Saladin had lit a touch paper in Hicks's mind, and shown him a set of events that he could emulate. Aboard his next whaling ship, he took it upon himself to lead a mutiny himself, stoking the fires of unrest in a crew that was quickly turning against their captain. When the time came to revolt, he led the charge, killed the captain, and then got drunk on the ship's rum. As the crew sobered up, they realised that they'd murdered the only men able to navigate the ship with any degree of competency, and so they turned themselves in. Whilst the leaders of the mutiny were once again saw themselves harshly punished, Hicks slunk off into the shadows, avoiding detection with the rest of the crew. It was a pattern that seemed to work for the young seaman and he spent the next years taking odd jobs aboard sailing vessels from sloops to whalers where he'd insidiously stoked resentment amongst the crew until mutiny was ensured. He would kill the officers, they would all get drunk and then he would escape before the consequences could catch up with him. Along the way he met a partner in chaos, a helmsman aboard a whaler named Tom Stone and together they worked ships going on a spree of sorts. Their murderous ways caught up with them eventually, when one day they killed a group of natives on a beach and then attempted to stoke a mutiny, but failed. Grassed up by the crew, the captain tossed hicks and stone into the hold and dispatched the pair on Hawaii. Abandoned in Hawaii, the pair holed up on a hillside home, venturing into town at night to gamble, cheat and rob from anyone that got in their path. For a long time, we led the life of freebooters, robbing and plundering wherever we went, and dissipating the proceeds of our robberies in the wildest debauchery. Their violent livelihoods couldn't pass by unnoticed forever, however, and the pair were eventually jailed in Honolulu, until a captain who was in dire need of a crew inquired to the jail for any competent seamen, Hicks and Stone jumped at the chance for freedom and signed aboard the whaler immediately though they did run away the moment the ship docked in Tahiti. Once more, they took to robbing and stealing until they were jailed, and once again, they were eventually set free at the request of a captain looking for a crew. This time, it was aboard a Dutch whaler bound for Magdalena Bay, where they disembarked and ran off into Mexico. For a while, Hicks and Stone robbed and killed in Mexico until the Mexican war got too hot for them. Fleeing the carnage, They hightailed north into California aboard a US store ship headed for Santa Cruz. Once on board, they robbed the cargo hold of all they could carry and escaped on a lifeboat heading into the Californian hills. By now, it was mid-century and gold rush fever had hit California. Hicks and Stone had timed their arrival perfectly, but not to mine or prospect. Instead. They took to robbing and stealing from the mining companies and various transport trains, working their way to San Francisco, following a trail of gold and leaving a path of blood. Once in San Francisco, they rented rooms in a hotel and lived a relatively quiet life, gambling and whoring away their fortunes in the various halls and brothels of the city. It ticked the box for debauchery, but it left something to be desired on the killing and robbing front for the pair. For six months, we led the life of demons, leaving no bad impulse, no fiendish purpose, no gross passion, nor any wicked design. Ungratified and unaccomplished. They eventually, perhaps gladly, ran out of money, and so they went back to the boats. Hitching a ride aboard the Josephine, they found themselves bound for Chile. The ship only had a crew of five, and so Hicks and Stone tied them up one night, put them in a lifeboat, and cast them out to sea. They bagged up all of the ship's money and valuables, a booty which happened to include a cargo hold full of silver doubloons and burnt the ship off the Mazatlan coast in Mexico. Once back on dry land, they realised that so much money could not easily be carried, nor easily laundered, nor spent. They bought a hotel and a bowling alley in Mazatlan and robbed the rich travellers after they had checked out. With the hotel as their base of operations, The pair robbed wagon trains, killing the guards and stashing the loot until they had more gold and silver that they knew what to do with. Hicks claimed that they decided to bury a large sum of this money off the highway, but he never mentioned the money again. It could, for all intents and purposes, still be there today. Suspicion was eventually falling around the hotel. So many travellers were being robbed after they had left that people began suspecting Hicks and Stone. As they always had, they upped and left, taken to the road, robbing miners and traders, until they eventually wound up aboard a ship bound for Rio de Janeiro. Once in Brazil, they rented by the docks in order to case the local ships and drink and gamble their money away once more. Once they were poor again, they took the road to Montevideo, Uruguay, robbing and killing all the way. In Buenos Aires, the pair next actually lived in harmony for a while, if only for two months. Life, however, was by now not about peace for Hicks and Stone. Boredom soon set in. They took a ship to New Orleans, but once on board they killed the captain due to him whipping the cabin boy, a scene which seemed to rub Hicks the wrong way. They ditched the ship in Barbados and took a second ship to finish the journey, winding up first in New Orleans, before making their way back to the east coast and heading towards Liverpool in England. It was to be a fateful voyage however and just off the coast of England the ship they were on sailed into a storm wrecking with the majority of the crew lost. Though Hicks and Stone survived they lost all their money and belongings and so they sailed back to the US as soon as they could. On the way back however they found themselves cast into a second storm and a second wreck off the coast of Alabama. This time they were less lucky with their lives. Stone was killed in the wreck and Hicks was put out to sea, floating listlessly on top of some wreckage, until he was picked up two days later and rescued. Alone for the first time in years, Hicks left Alabama and headed to New York, stopping for a time in Boston. He met a new partner in a man named Lockwood. He thought no more of stealing a purse or cutting a throat than I, said Hicks, who introduced Lockwood to the life that he had led with Stone until the pair wound up in Chile where they boarded a legit pirate ship named the Anne Mills smuggling slaves, robbing cargo and cruising around the world causing terror under a black flag. Their time aboard the Anne Mills lasted for over a year until eventually, on a cold day in London, in England, Hicks and Lockwood disembarked and parted ways. Hicks boarded a steamer bound for New York named the Isaac Wright where he met a young Irish lady with weak eyes who he charmed into marrying him less than a year later in 1853. Her own family had recommended against it, owing to the fact that she had only just met him and knew nothing about his life. But they married regardless, and they moved to Connecticut where Hicks took a job in a shop. It was a stifling life for him, however, and the pair moved back to New York, where Hicks took jobs aboard ships hauling molasses and sugar and cotton. After the birth of their son, They settled into the apartments on Cedar Street and Hicks took to the bars on the docks of New York City. Here, he was kind of a legend. Most didn't know of his horrific past, only heard small rumours here and there, but stories flew of a lone wolf, a hired hand or perhaps an assassin. Hicks wasn't just whiling away the days in newlywed harmony during his days on the docks, however, and he had been casing the boats that came and went into the busy harbours. I kept a sharp lookout for a small outward bound for cargoes of fruit, oysters, etc. And in a quiet way, I gathered all the information I could in regard to the number of hands they shipped and the amount of money they generally carried. It was at this time that he cased the E.A. Johnson, the oyster sloop bound for Virginia. He had heard that they had a position of a mate up for grabs, and he applied for the job and was promptly hired by Captain Burr for $19 a month plus an $8 advance. In the run-up to their first trip, he worked tirelessly as a carpenter, charming his way into the captain's good graces until they departed for their first leg to Virginia. This was it. This one would be one last job in order to set him right. With the money from this one, he could lead a quiet life with his new wife and child. As they sailed outside of New York to the east of Sandy Hook, on the night of the 20th of March 1860, he sprang on Oliver Watts whilst pretending to steer the ship, crashing an axe that he had taken from the pilot house into his skull. Once a body had hit the deck, he hit him again. It wasn't long before his brother, Smith Watts, came up to the deck to see what the noise was, and as he stuck his head from the hull, Hicks approached him and swung the axe, chopping his head clean off, sending it skidding across the deck. It was, according to Hicks, as easy as cutting the trunk of a sapling tree. The headless body of Smith Watts crashed back into the cabin below and Hicks hopped down after it, alerting the captain. The Captain Burr greeted him in alarm, struggled to pull himself up from bed, and a fight ensued. Captain Burr was no mug, and Hicks had a time getting enough distance between himself and his prey, smashing the axe into the ceiling and walls of the cabin before finally sinking it into his head, cutting away a huge chunk of his face and skull. The blow took away half of his head. Half of his eye was on the blade, a piece of his nose, and some beard. Back on the deck above, Hicks found Oliver Watt struggling to get to his feet. Unbelievably, he had survived the axe blows to his head, and so Hicks grabbed him and threw him overboard. As he fell, Oliver grabbed hold of the ship's railing, and Hicks slammed the axe down onto his hand, casting his fingers off, skidding them across the blood-strewn deck, and dropping the man into the sea. Dead men tell no tales. My bloody work was done. I was alone. No eye had seen me, and now I was free to reap the reward. Hicks tossed the remaining bodies overboard, including the head of Smith, and he stashed all of the money that he could find into a large sack. As he burnt holes into the back of the cabin with a poker to sink the vessel, he felt an almighty crash. The ship had hit another boat. Then came calling. Whoever they had hit was calling out to see who was on board. Hicks kept quiet. He waited for the ship to disentangle itself, and then he hopped into the lifeboat, rowing for the shore of Staten Island. And here our story completes. Hicks's confession had been far more than anyone had ever expected. Arrested and sentenced for killing three men aboard an oyster sloop for two hundred and sixty dollars, Hicks had killed potentially hundreds more. Even he himself admitted to have lost count of the number of men that he had been slain by his hand. He had lived a life of untold violence and debauchery. He had seen riches come and go, and he had had it all undone for a paltry sum. And now he was to pay with his life. In the days running up to his execution, Hicks settled his affairs. He had his face cast by Barnum for his waxwork model, and he traded his clothes with the man for new ones so that the model could wear the real clothes of the pirate king. He laid out the legal work for the publishing of his confession to ensure that his wife would take the proceeds, and then he called to the press, arranging for a meeting in his cell where he performed a song that he told them that he had written, which, as it turned out, was something of a strange origin story for the pirate. My own, my dear loved mother, if I could see thy face, I'd kiss thy lips in tenderness and take my last embrace. I'd bathe thee in my awful grief, before my fatal hour, I'd then submit myself to God, his holy will and power. Near the town of Foster is the place where I was born, but here in New York City, I'll end my days in scorn. I shipped aboard the Saladin, as you may understand, bound to South America, Captain Kenzie in command. We arrived in that country, without undue delay, when Fielding came on board, ah, cursed be that day. He first persuaded us to do that horrid crime. We would then have prevented it if we'd begun in time. I stained my hands in blood, which I do not deny. I shed the blood of innocence, for which I have to die. They led them up the plank and to the fatal stand, and there they viewed the ocean, also the pleasant land. The cord adjusted through the ring, then stopped their mortal breath. Forthwith the whole were launched into the jaws of death. At 9am on the morning of Friday, July the 13th, Albert Hicks was led out of jail and escorted to Bedloe's Island to meet his justice. He wore an electric blue suit that had been donated to him via the Freemasons along with his Kossuth hat and when asked how he felt, he replied, I feel very well. It was a picture not seen in over 21 years when Cornelius Wilhelms had been hanged for piracy in the summer of 1839. With public executions long since cast aside by the state, a hanging was a rare treat. Hicks's crime of piracy fell under federal jurisdiction, and as such, crowds of thousands were expected to gather to see the event. Hicks was bound to make history in one final way, as he was given the honour of being the last public execution that would ever take place in New York. Overlooking the East River and Brooklyn, The gallows had been erected on a green hillside on the northeast side of the island in the days prior, supervised by Marshal Rinder, who afterwards had spent the final few days issuing tickets aboard a steamer that would bring the crowds to watch the spectacle like some kind of distorted ringmaster. The scene at Bedloe's Island was one of organised chaos. Boats surrounded the stretch of water with a view of the gallows, all filled to the rafters with onlookers estimated to have been around 11,000 strong by the New York Times. It was 11am when Hicks had the noose tied around his neck and the executioner dropped the platform at 11.13am, hanging him for six minutes, before bringing down the lifeless body of the pirate, only to put him back up for the satisfaction of the crowd. Once he'd hung for over half an hour, his body was finally lowered from the gallows and taken to Cavalry Cemetery, where he was buried. Within a matter of weeks, the site had been dug up and his body stolen, more than likely it had been robbed to be sold to the local Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons, who routinely bought fresh cadavers from grave robbers to fuel the dissection classes. Back in New York, Hicks's story continued to live on amongst the underclasses, in the back streets and the dive bars of the ports. In many respects, and to a certain class of people, he embodied the American dream, His was a story that mirrored the very country itself. It was full of violence, criminality, frontier gallivanting and freedom. He was equal parts respected, feared and revered. He laid the groundwork for the mob bosses, the gangsters and the many infamous that would go on to follow in his trail. As if one song wasn't enough, several weeks after his hanging, a tune was published named Hickster Pirate to the popular folk tune The Rose Tree. It was the final step in the creation of Albert Higgs, folk hero, the pirate king of New York. That was the fairly violent story of albert hicks which was i thought totally cool um so i really hope you enjoyed it got a few like kind of little bits and bobs that kind of struck my mind as i was writing it and reading it so we'll talk about those after these short advert breaks
1: forbidden history grisly ghosts monstrous cryptids and harrowing folklore dominate japan's history and culture Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert, Dr. Heath Avey. Season one relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com.
0: Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. This podcast is entirely independent and funded by myself and listener support, so in order to do that, I need to run a few ads. Our long-time advertising partner is Audible, and the reason I've stuck with them for so long is that they offer a service that I actually use and enjoy myself, and I do think it actually offers value to people like myself who enjoy podcasts. If you're unaware of what Audible is, it's an audiobook subscription service which charges a monthly fee in return for one credit, which you're free to spend on any audiobook you like. The catalogue is huge, multilingual, and covers everything from fiction to series of lectures. They have an iOS, Android, and web app, and if you use more than one, they all sync up together so that you can listen on any of your devices without having to skip about. If you ever feel like you want to take a break from the subscription, you can do so and you get to keep all your previously bought books. And when you get into a drought, you can just fire it up again and start gaining credits seamlessly. Some of my favourite books on there to date are The Complete Sherlock Holmes, which is read by Stephen Fry. And they've also got the Original Exorcist book and just a huge history back catalogue. And I've really enjoyed all of those basically. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in, head over to audible.com forward slash dark histories. And that's dark histories on one word. And you can start a free trial that offers a monthly subscription with one free credit so that you can instantly pick an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the trial, you feel like it's not really for you, you can just cancel it and it's cost you nothing and you get to keep your free book. So once again, that's audible.com forward slash dark histories. Or you can find the link in the show notes. So earlier I mentioned listener support and there are a ton of ways that you can get involved and support Dark Histories. The main way is to become a Patreon patron. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, I'm sure you're familiar by now. But for those not so much, Patreon is a way to make a monthly pledge in return for some small perks. On the Dark Histories Patreon, I set my pledges as low as I can, really, with options for $1, $3, and $5 per month. And for that, you gain things like early access episodes without these horrible ads, PDF notes, and resources that I make and find during my research for each episode. There's also access to the live stream archives and more. So if you enjoy the show and you think it's worth it to you, hop over to darkhistories.com. And you can find all the ways that you can support, including our Patreon, or just check out the links in the show notes. If none of that appeals, then sharing it around with all your friends and family is equally as helpful and just as much appreciated. So if you're here, then thanks so much for not skipping the ads with that 30-second skip button and giving my hard sell a listen. I'll let you get back to the episode. Cheers. welcome back so yeah first of all i just want to say quick thank you to um kevin from the the youtube channel the good tune who did that rendition of the rose tree when i found this tune i I went and found the lyrics um and and found and so instantly i wanted to find like the the tune that went with it and i I looked them up on youtube and i found a few that were kind of interesting and, and nice and they they were played really well on that but but those guys on from The Good Tune, and they, they did a re, just a really great rendition of it. And their channel, then I ended up watching a few other bits from their channel, and it's really cool. Um, so yeah, check them out if, if, if you fancy it. But yeah, I, I obviously um, reached out to them and asked them if I could use the audio, and they came through like totally and sent me like the MP3 and everything. So that was really kind of them to let me to use that. So yeah, definitely thanks very much uh, to The Good Tune. Say, go check them out. They're, they're, they're quite a cool channel on YouTube. So yeah, that was Albert Hicks. I thought it was a really fun episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Really fascinating. I'm not sure I completely buy it all. I thought it was really fascinating that his confession was just so extreme. Like basically, you know, this guy who no one knew who he was really, had had basically spent his entire life just robbing, stealing and murdering people and, you know, sort of pirating his way around and... Ca- causing mutinies at sea and had just been an absolute nightmare, like just walking chaotic nightmare his entire life. I, I, I At first, I wasn't sure how much to believe. Well, f- so first of all, his confession has been published, right? So you can read it. Um, it it's in the sources if if you want to check it out. Um, so check out the show notes. It's, it's all written there in the sources. You'll be able to find the name of it and everything. But it's clearly not written by Hicks. It says right at the start, you know, that this is word for word, true Albert Hicks's words well it's it's not it's too flowery to be Albert Hicks's words it's it's definitely been sort of zhuzhed up if you like for the publication but the details are supposedly true and I wasn't sure how much to believe because I thought okay he's made this story up to be really sensationalist so that his wife can you know do well once he's been hung you know his wife will not um, just starve and die, you know, he'll be able to sell plenty of copies of his confession and his wife, will, you know, will, will profit from that. But there's a couple of things wrong with that. Firstly, I think his confession would have sold no matter what it said, because, you know, there was 12,000 people, 11 to 12,000 people gone to see his execution. It was a really big deal. People were going to have bought that that confession um, anyway, because they, they they published it on the morning of his execution, right? So they were, they were blatantly going to buy that as like a souvenir, you know, so it would have sold, you know, even if it said like, oh, I'm Albert Hicks and I didn't do anything with my life. And, and that's the the end. it, It would have sold just as many copies, but also quite a lot of it has actually been confirmed as being true. So you can actually confirm a fair chunk of the details that he says people were where he said they were at the right times. And, it solved a lot of crimes, so um people uh, so detectives from all across America and in, in South America used his confession to solve crimes that they had had for ages that had gone cold um so so definitely his confession uh, was you know had a spark of truth. I don't know how much it is, but you have to say at least a good chunk of it is true. But yeah, otherwise that—that's that, kind of it. I mean, the story's the story, isn't it? It's—it's it's just a brutal story of murder, really. Um, but but I really like Albert Hicks, and it's really interesting. Um, so the book that I the main book that I sort of read for this, I read uh, like some of the original source material, and obviously the original confession and all the rest of it. And I read, but I read a modern book on it by I think um Rich Cohen. Um, and it's called The Last Pirate of New York: A Ghost Ship, A Killer, and the Birth of a Gangster Nation and it, and it's really interesting his take on it like so, so the reason he wrote this book is he basically traced back um the the gangsters like the, the the mob bosses and the gang leaders until they all had stories of this guy you know so he was looking for like the origin of the gang leader kind of thing like the the the, the big boss i guess and um you know, he, he followed the stories back and he followed the stories back. He followed the stories back until he got to everyone eventually talked about Albert Hicks. The legends spoke of legends, if you like, um, and, and that legend was Albert Hicks. And I found the way he linked that to modern day crime and uh, organized crime and mob bosses and stuff in New York really interesting. Um, but honestly, I found the whole story of Hicks just, just mad. You, when you read it, it's so far detached. It sounds like this really exciting story, almost like this exciting story of pirating around the world, you know, because it's so far detached from the reality. It's such a long time ago, and it's such a, a tale of adventure and excitement almost. Um, so I, I kind of, I, the way I presented the episode, and I hope it came across, I wanted to kind of get that across. Like, you, you kind of read his confession, and you're almost kind of taken in by it, and you're almost kind of thinking cool you know you're you're like gallivanting around the world and living like free and as you please and and doing what you want and that so i really wanted to kind of create the narrative so that then at the very end of his confession you found out what he did aboard the sloop to kind of drive home that actually although it was this story of adventure and pirating and that it was a lot of brutal murder like in the cold light of day like what he was doing wasn't this kind of cool fun adventure it was brutal savage murder and so I, I kinda of tried to do that with the episode. I hope it kinda across it did come across. Anyway, that's what I was kinda of trying to do with that. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. Um that was that. Um I don't think there's much else to really speak about that one. Um so we'll leave it there I guess. So thanks very much for listening. Um I I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Um if you'd like to get in touch with me about anything you can do so. Um all social media as always um we're on you know twitter instagram all that kind of jazz you can find all the links to that on the website which is dark histories.com you'll also be able to find the ways to contact me um directly which is um obviously you can dm me on those uh social medias but you can also email me um contact at dark histories.com and you can also find out all the ways that you can support you know i i'm really proud that the podcast has been able to get as far as it has and, and grow to the size it has and and, and remain completely independent. Um, and, and that's purely thanks to all the listeners and, and all the help of everyone that, that, that basically has helped to make it. Anyway, that's, that's enough of that. Um, thank you very much for listening. I do hope this episode found you healthy and well, and that you're keeping your head above water and remaining that way. And I'll be back in a couple of weeks for another episode. So thank you very much again for listening. Uh, Take care. Sleep tight.